0: ZX is the investment arm for AB and Bev, which is one of the largest beverage companies in the world. Most people recognize a lot of our sort of premium brands in the market, like Budweiser and Modelo and Corona and Stella Artois.
1: The Pathfinder podcast is presented to you by Onterato. Onterato is the modern deal and virtual data room technology designed to make M&A capital raising divestments, restructures and IPOs as simple as possible. Since 2005, Anserata has been trusted in over 24,000 transactions and powered over one trillion worth of deals. Anserata is a secure space that includes workflow tools, AI-powered data rooms, built-in question and answer and integration frameworks. It's the data room trusted by modern dealmakers. You can start for free today at anserata.com. You know I like a winning team, so say it with me, anserata.com for your next winning outcome. Welcome to The Pathfinders, the modern dealmaker series brought to you by Ansarada. Now, here's your host, Dahani Jones. Welcome back, everybody, to The Pathfinders presented by Ansarada. I'm your host, former NFL player, investor, and entrepreneur, Dahani Jones. Today, I'm joined by Bert Navarrete. Bert is General Partner and Head of Growth at ZX Ventures and manages a global investment team focused on direct-to-consumer, B2B, fintech, and circular economy investments. He's with us today to share a few deal-making stories, discuss the path his career has taken him, and give us a little insight into how ZX Ventures is empowering entrepreneurs to unlock exponential growth. Welcome, Bert Navaret. What's going on, Bert?
0: Hey, hey, how's it going?
1: Don't act like that. You know, we go way back. Come on, man. You know, I know you're sitting in that amazing office doing deals all across the board. I'm not even going to get into like what circular economy actually looks like right off the gate, because I want to go back into your history. You know, like we spend time, you know, you've actually helped me so much. Now I got to figure out, like what I was actually learning from you.
0: Okay. well, first of all, it took your retirement for the Bengals to go to the Super Bowl, huh? (laughs) I, talk about that first. Don't talk about my
1: team. But, you know, Joe Burrow, you know, you know, he might come out of this game and he might say, you know, what, I did a great job. I invested in myself. But, you know, it may you know what I helped. We helped the team helped put the Bengals on the right path when That's when right. I was there, too.
0: That's right. So like, well, tell me one thing before we get started, because I don't know, because I'm not a Bengals fan. And you dropped me off at a Giants game one time and like left me on my own. So we'll talk about that another time. But what is the whole who day thing?
1: Who day? I mean, that's our chant. That That is the evolution of our chant that represents the entire team. I mean, that's how we get amped up. That's our battle cry. I mean, everybody in, in the world of sports has their own individual battle cry. And I, that's the Bengals battle cry. So I mean, but I got to ask you, you know, you're the Harvard grad. What was your battle cry?
0: Show up to the game? <laughs>
1: <laughs> no, but seriously, when when you went to Harvard, right? You know, I know that you all had a tremendous football team and you guys had, you know, really 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 competitive. You went to some of the games and you and you saw, you know, players Ryan Fitzpatrick, great quarterback. You know, he's doing a lot of doing a lot of different things and I think he's played for a significant amount of time and I think he's arguably one of my my favorite quarterbacks. But as, as you kind of moved through campus, what took you down the, tra- the trajectory of, you know, entrepreneurship?
0: For me, I sort of lucked my way into it, to be honest. I, I don't think I was ever really sort of set out to be an entrepreneur, other than perhaps like when I was younger, you know, I, I worked a lot of jobs that involved selling things that were traditionally hard to sell. So I think one summer I I live in Princeton, New Jersey, which is a lovely college town, which you visited you know, and I, at one point in high school, went door to door selling used printer cartridges. And I don't think, you know, there's a sort of, sort of a tougher sell than, you know, going around to all these small, medium businesses, trying to convince them that they need to replace their, you know, factory label uh, printer cartridges with generic ones. But, you know, I always found myself, you know, working in some sort of customer facing role, whether it was sales or retail jobs, et cetera. And, and in terms of like how I got into venture, I mean, you know, when I graduated from school, uh, traditional finance was pretty much the path a lot of people followed, you know, whether it was investment banking or consulting or, you know, management consulting. And, you know, I sort of set my, my sights on at least being in New York, being on Wall Street. That was supposed to be my keys to the kingdom, if you will, at least uh, the 21 year old self told myself. And I, I really lucked my way into venture. I know you, you and I have talked about this many times. I was, Working at Merrill Lynch at the time, and we had a brand new chief marketing officer join our company, really to educate our board about what the internet was. So this was the late nineties. That gentleman's name is James Gorman, who is now the chairman and CEO of Morgan Stanley. And he joined from McKinsey, you know, as our first chief marketing officer, told, you know, our board and our senior leadership team that we really needed to innovate technologically, digitally in order to address this new market in the internet. And part of one of the strategies that he put in place was a series of investment funds to invest in companies that we as a firm could also partner with, you know, help to co-create or even, you know, in some cases acquire these, these companies. And so that sort of put me down that path, if not for, you know, sort of right place, right time, sort of lucked my way into it.
1: Yeah, I often find that it is those unique moments where you kind of just take a chance and you're having the conversation and, and people are like, let's just, let's just dive into this. And you kind of raise your hand in the same entrepreneurial fashion that you did with selling, you know, printer cartridges. You know, for me, you know, I remember back in high school, I was selling blow pops out of my locker because I was trying to figure out different ways to kind of understand you know what people wanted. But you know, if I wanted to go get something, I had to sell something at a little bit higher markup in order for me to go spend some extra cash. So I could, so I could be an entrepreneur. I think, you know, these are the fun things that we look back upon our childhood that are watershed moments that really kind of propel us into where we are in the future.
0: Yeah, it's funny you mentioned that. So now I'm thinking back even deeper. When I was in middle school, I went to a boarding school and pretty local to my house. And I think I was running the black market of candy distribution for my dormitory. My mother would drop off Twix bars and candy bars, and I would mark them up at 25 cents a quarter and, uh, you know, 25 cents a piece. And I remember we... We were supposed to leave the candy with our, you know, our house parenting. You'll only get gain access to it on the weekend. But because my mother would drop him off, I'd leave him in my room. I remember our headmaster called me in one day and he said, you know, I understand you're running the little enterprise out of room seven, right? And I said, <laughs> uh, you know, somehow candy found its way to circulate in my room. And he said, well, you can circulate your way to work detail, which was like a form of detention. So I had to pick weeds from the, uh, from the little, uh, walkway outside of my school for about a week as detention and punishment for selling candy you know in my dorm room so
1: but look those those are the things that give us our steadfast endurance to kind of mire our way through investing because it is the the little details and it is the the weeds that grow up through the cracks that you got to knock down in order to make sure that deals go through that make sure like you find the right deal i mean there's so many so many pieces of relevance so thank goodness you know, the the headmaster of the school made you do cleanup duty.
0: Yeah. No, we laugh about it nowadays. In fact, you know, I think, you know, you end up speaking to a lot of my old former classmates. We laugh. Like it's really that sort of discipline that we at the time probably didn't like so much, but we really look back fondly on it. Now.
1: Do you think that those moments prepared you better for your time now at ZX or do you think it was your time at Merrill Lynch?
0: I would say everything. I mean, you know, we're at a point in our lives and our careers where, you know, we've taken this collective experience across many different cycles, many different markets. You know, there's a whole generation of investors now who have never experienced a, a bear market. And having sort of have those battle scars and those bruises, I think, you know, teach a lot about how to best prepare you for the present. I can't say there's a sort of one singular moment, but it's really just more of a combination of all of those experiences.
1: I know you're not making predictions in terms of like what's happening with our economy and our current situation, but say things get a little bit trying for for anybody. Or how do you think the generation will deal with a potential bear market versus bull market? I mean, it's bound to happen at some point in time. But but how do you think how do you think the how do you think that people are going to react to that? How do you think people are going to take their experiences and and apply them in, into a current economy?
0: I think most people don't realize it's happening Uh, you know, don't recognize it's happening to them until it, it really affects them personally. And I would say that when I'm talking to my team, you know, especially those who are of a generation who maybe have not experienced the bear market, I keep reminding them that this is where you earn your stripes as investors and mentors and advisors, because when things are going well, you almost never hear from your companies. I mean, the companies that are doing really well, they never need to call you and need to tell you or ask you for your advice. As an investor and, and you know, from being an advisor, right? That it's the tough times where you really prove your, your, your contribution. And I like to remind them that, you know, they should, you and I've talked about this many times before, but like, I think one of the most important skills as a, as an investor and a mentor and advisor is to really have a strong sense of empathy for the folks that you work with and the folks that you mentor because Like I said, you know, in good times, everything's going well. No one really needs any help. But even in good times, people often struggle and they struggle with decision making. And are they making really good decisions on behalf of their company and their employees? And you you just need to be open and receptive to understanding what they might need from you, which is not necessarily writing another check or, you know, helping them, you know, with a sales plan. Sometimes it's just listening to them vent you and I do all the time.
1: Well, I I think that, you know, taken from the words of Carla Harris, you know, it's all about that advice and counsel and no matter the good times or the bad times, you know, people need those. It just like sits in my brain because as an investor, as an advisor, people are asking for it all the time. And when things get tough, uh, people are going to start asking those questions. How was your experience when you were on the board of directors for Ancestry.com? Did you ever get to those moments where people ask you those difficult questions and how did you find your way through it?
0: Not just Ancestry, but any board. I think, you know, Ancestry was a very interesting investment for, for me and for just us as a firm. So we had invested in the precursor to Ancestry at Merrill and it was at the time called third age media. And, you know, we're very, we're talking very much about sort of the early days of the internet, the, the world wide web <laughs> where it was a very novel thing. 1.0. That's right. 1.0. Now we're on 3.0. That's, uh, it's like web three. So it was a very novel idea to put something online that was open for, you know, mass consumption. And at the time there was a, there was a group that was, you know, focused on making almost landing pages for families. So you could have the honeyjones.com and, you know, it'd be sort of a personal portal pre Facebook and pre GeoCities where you could have this independently branded uh, website. And they quickly, you know, pivoted through a variety of different product iterations and mergers to, you know, really tap into one of the largest genealogical repositories in the world, which is based in Utah. And that began sort of the journey through Ancestry.com. So to say that I had any real influence over that was is to give them a disservice. But I will say, you know, during the first technology bubble, when, you know, the market was imploding and everything was, you know, no one really understood what business model would continue to con- Continue on. I did spend a good period of time with their CFO on the phone talking about, you know, different solutions for them, who they might be able to call. They ended up raising around from a, a large private equity firm and continue to do quite well. But, you know, it's, it's in those moments where you need to be. I, I often tell people that you would be amazed about how much of a job as a quasi psychologist you play as an investor beyond, you know, just the check and the management review that sometimes you just need to sound out ideas with folks. And that's been consistent across every investment that I've done, whether they've been wildly successful or have failed, you know, you end up spending all of your time servicing your, your companies and, and, and the management teams that are brave enough to create them.
1: So how much of that do you incorporate into your deal-making mindset?
0: Like I said, it all goes back to, you know, really having uh, one thing I've been proud of in terms of my sort of maturation and age and just in general experience is I, I feel that I've developed just consistently better EQ over time. Really trying to understand, you know, um, sometimes entrepreneurs, co-investors, partners, you know, are, aren't the best at expressing themselves, but on getting to the root of what their real, you know, anxiety is surrounding or trying to help them problem solve, I think only is accomplished through really close listening and, you know, spending that time really trying to almost put yourself in their shoes. I mean, I think we lose sight of the fact that creating new businesses is extremely hard. You know, you've created new businesses, I've created new businesses, and it's a lonely existence in so many regards where it's, it's so easy to get lost in your own head. And I pride myself on my ability to connect with People in general and entrepreneurs. I mean, that's why you and I are such good friends, right? Like we met each other eleven years ago and we instantly collect. So I think that's an intangible skill. We we often talk about entrepreneurs possessing this grit and resiliency and this never say die attitude. But you also need to be really sympathetic to the fact that it is still inherently hard to create something new. And being attuned to that I think is really key.
1: I'm just thinking about that word eq right so many people just completely forget how valuable that is especially when you got so much noise coming at you left and right you you got multiple people talking to you you know everybody's just death scrolling all the time trying to figure out more insights and information you can go to youtube you can look up all these different things you can talk to anybody on the street you know people just show up i mean there's just so much information out there That that quality that you're talking about in terms of listening, people just forget about that. Even if they've reached out to you, Bert, to say, hey, I'd like for you to invest in my company, provide advice and counsel to my business. And I and I'm going to rely upon your insights and skill and some of those, um, you know, that advice and counsel. But then people forget that listening part. How do you incorporate? And And I and I'm hammering on this deal making side, because I think it's really important for people to understand there's so many parts of the deal. And that emotional intelligence around the deal is probably one of the most important pieces that people leave out.
0: Yeah, no, I agree. I mean, you know, deal making in and of itself is fairly academic. You know, you have negotiations around the price you want to pay, the price they want to sell, the interest that you want to take, the governance that you that you, you know, expect to maintain, etc. You know, I think you're right. I mean, the way that I sort of think through it is. To, to have this sense of of just active listening, sometimes I get teased actually at work that I'm I'm rather quiet in meetings, you know, at least initially. And to be honest, most of the time I'm really just trying to listen and and try to get the root of you know what people are presenting and 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 try to try to little really like hear what's most important to them because that helps shape the narrative and and just frankly you know generates greater ability to get a transaction done or deal make. or or involve yourself in deal-making when you understand what the true desires of, you know, your, you know, prospective partner is. And I also tend to to believe that people, you know, are very sometimes emotional in what they, what they present because this is their pride and joy. This is their idea. That's something that they've spent waking hours and, you know, sleepless nights working on. And, you know, I feel very strongly about affording them that courtesy of intently listening but also really trying to key in on what is most important to them. Because sometimes what's most important to them doesn't necessarily align with what's important to us or to me or to my shareholders. And we can agree to disagree and perhaps not do a deal together. But as soon as you can cut through that noise that you're talking about, I think it's, you find yourself being most productive that way.
1: Do you find it's any different in an acquisition versus just an investment you know, when you are on the board of the wedding channel, right. And acquired by the knot, is that sort of a different sort of circumstance versus like placing capital?
0: No, it's the same. I would say it's the same in every interact, every, every business interaction that I have, or even every just initial personal, you know, introduction that I have, I try to be extremely observant and, you know, actively listening, you know, because I, I feel that that's the best way to get to know somebody um, because at the end of the day, most of this, you know, not most of it, but a lot of this is, a result of a relationship you can forge and maintain with person, whether it's a professional transaction and investment or, you in know, a friendship. That's, that's the way that I view it.
1: So you've got all these great experiences that I'm finally learning all about and all these different investment advice that some of which I've, I've received myself and other now I'm just listening intently. And, and now you, you know, you're, you know, leading growth or is ZX ventures, right? And so you got three in, investment areas, the beverage fund, the new venture fund, growth equity fund. What's the main focus? Cause I've, I feel like you can funnel all of your background and experiences into now this, this effort, but what's, what's the main, main focus as people are listening in?
0: I'll just give a quick overview of who we are and then, you know, how we sort of play in this ecosystem. So ZX is the investment arm for AB InBev, which is one of the largest beverage companies in the world. Most people recognize a lot of our sort of premium brands in the market, like Budweiser and Modelo and Corona and Stella Artois, which is, you know, a multi-hundred-year brand. The Pathfinders podcast is presented
1: to you by Anserata. Anserata is the modern deal and virtual data room technology designed to make M&A capital raising divestments, restructures and IPOs as simple as possible. Ansarada has just launched freemium with the world's first online data room quote. Now you can get a free data room and quote in just three clicks and just 15 seconds. There's no need to wait. Get your room open straight away, no matter what stage you're at. Deal marketing, deal preparation or due diligence. And here's the best bit. Usage fees only start when the deal goes live. All the top M&A firms and investment banks are jumping on it. That's because there is no risk, just reward. Pretty cool, right? Check it out at anserata.com slash quote. You know, I like a winning team. So say it with me, anserata.com for your next winning outcome.
0: Like most sort of storied brands, there's a need to innovate and digitize, you know, as you're moving from, you know, both a physical world to a, you know, virtual world. And so our Our funds are set up to help innovate and sort of accelerate growth for our broader parent company. And in that, we have three basic funds that we invest out of. There is a beverage fund, which, you know, invests in new brands and new interesting uh, products that we can help bring to the market and take global. We're very proud of things like Cut Water, which is one of our ready-to-drink canned cocktails. I see you nodding, so you probably have had one and enjoyed one, you know.
1: Well, I'm just trying to figure out if I had a refrigerator behind me, how much of it would actually be filled with A&B Bev product <laughs> or how much should it be filled because you sent me a, a bunch of product to take care of me? You know, I could have had it all all back
0: here just for you. No, 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 no. I told you when we're coming down later on this, uh, this spring, we will bring you a bunch of stuff. And then we have two funds that are fairly closely aligned. We have the new venture fund and then the growth equity fund, which I help lead. And. Now, for us, it's all about finding interesting technology solutions or services that can help really seek either operational efficiencies for our business or expand to new markets. And in that context, we have sort of three broad areas that we invest into. We're very interested in technology affecting how we serve our product to consumers. So direct-to-consumer platforms, marketplaces, quick commerce, delivery, etc., We have a very large business to business focus area where in some cases we are working with our merchant partners and providing them fintech services to allow them, you know, better access to credit to sell our products as well as logistics and supply chain. And then, you know, you talked a little bit about the circular economy. Yeah,
1: you're going to you're going to have to expand upon that. So
0: simply put, you write the word economy and then you draw a circle around it and then there you go. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> no, I'm just joking. You know, we have this really great interest. I mean, it's a very fascinating topic. You know, we are one of the largest producers and consumers of barley in the world. And one of our companies, Evergreen, is taking our spent barley from the brewing process and upcycling it into protein and protein alternatives for for the market. So we're effectively circulating the uh, the product through all of our systems and monetizing in that way. We have another company that we invested in called BioBrew, which is focused on scaling precision fermentation. Uh So we have decades and decades of fermentation science that we've become experts on and given, you know, the history of our products where we're now working in and around biotech to create new, you know, proteins. Very interesting. You know, another area which I think is near and dear to your heart is. And you know, we're going down this whole exploration of new ways to market and bring our consumers together. So most people consume our products in a congregate setting, whether it's a football game, whether it's a barbecue, whether it's a party. But the next generation is congregating in the metaverse or they are doing things on mobile devices. And so you know, we just made and we're looking for ways to, you know, marry both our physical products as well as with these digital products. So we just launched the Bud Light Next Collection NFT drop. We've generated over 12,000 tokens that like, celebrate this innovation. We have a brand new beer that is being released. No, the, the, the beer was released last night, uh, yesterday, right?
1: Well, how come it didn't show up on my doorstep, Bert?
0: I know. Well, I got to get you some product.
1: And actually, I think you should call the circle economy. You should call it just the recycled economy. I think that actually works just fine. So so would you say that a couple of those companies that you were just uh, referring to would be things that you're really, really excited about?
0: Yeah, they're the future of our company by far. I mean, we're moving beyond just our core product of beverages and really finding and expanding into new markets, health, wellness, all of the, you know, the future of food. Right. So, you know, as we continue to consume more protein over time, you know, there's a lot of effort, as you know, even in the traditional markets where people are looking for protein alternatives. And, you know, we're pretty well suited to handle that.
1: So how does the, how does the metaverse, I mean, aside from doing the, the NFT drops that Bud Light might participate, I feel like it has no bounds for you. I mean, it can create a whole new channel for ZX, for A&B, Bev. I mean, it could just populate and in everywhere. How do you think through that as an investor? How do you think through that as a thought leader? How do you think through that giving advice and counsel to some of the portfolio companies that you work with?
0: Yeah. So, you know, we have the great benefit of having an extremely large organization surrounded by some of the best in class experiential marketing and just digital marketing professionals in the world. They know this business cold, right? They know what type of outreach is required to reach our, our consumer, how we would, you know, increase our, our product sort of be perceived as both innovative fun, you know, again, driving some of those social experiences. And you're right. I mean, the, the opportunity is endless. You know, we are pretty close with all of the major entertainment outlets, whether they are sports, music, film, entertaining, and, and for us really You know, a product as a creator is the mindset that we take in terms of how we engage in this ecosystem. So outside of the Bud Light NFT, we're co-creating it alongside the launch of a new drink. So Bud Light Next is here to redefine our light beer category at zero carbs, 80 calories, 4% ABV. Available as of yesterday.
1: Love that plug. That's right. Go get it now.
0: Go get it now. But we're, you know, we're able to co-launch an initiative in a different way, right? Whereas in the past, you might have just seen it in print or in regular media channels. We're now, we're now exploring and have done so, you know, launching an NFT alongside a product launch. So you'll continue to see more and more from us in this space. It is probably one of the most exciting areas that we continue to pursue this whole sort of future around socializing. And, you know, we have a lot of other marquee events that we're either sponsoring or co-hosting through the remainder of the year where you'll see a lot more activity around that space.
1: Well, I love the circular economy. I love pushing the envelope in the metaverse. I love how you guys are thinking about it when it relates to NFTs. And I, I think that everybody should be thinking about that, right? At the very beginning of our conversation, we talked about Web 1.0, where you essentially started your career. Dial-up, baby. Right. And then, you know, you're moving through 2.0 and now you're into the world of 3.0. I mean, so, you know, over the course of, of your career, the VC world has has changed. How do you think firms can, you know, adapt to the changing landscape? You know, how should firms think about that? How should people think about that?
0: Yeah. I mean, so if I were to sort of rewind the tape on, you know, where we were in the early 2000s to where we are today, number one makes me realize that was 22 years ago. So I'm a dinosaur. <laughs> but number two, you know, I would say that the pace of innovation is exponentially faster than it was in the early 2000s. Mm-hmm. And if there's one sort of lesson learned or in retrospect that I would constantly remind myself of is it's easy to be skeptical in any given market when something new and innovative has been introduced but in this new paradigm you better be willing to quickly pivot and change even more than just five years ago just because things are happening with or without you you know and i think it's easy to be dismissive of new innovative things like understanding deeply what nfts are beyond just a collectible like what are the applications how is it going to change fundamentally the ways business integrate and interact with each other and one thing that hasn't changed over those, over these two decades is the sheer necessity to be always like reeducating yourself. I mean, it's one of the most enjoyable parts of the job is that I learn something new every day, right? I learn something new every day, either by reading or talking to an entrepreneur. And, you know, you constantly have to be reeducating yourself because, you know, I I find myself now, you know, on discord, learning about new, you know, Dow protocols or, you know, talking to you about something, you know, we saw collectively together
1: well, I don't know how you keep everything together considering you got Slack going on one side and you got Discord going on the other side. And then all the myriad of different things that are happening. I mean, just thinking about all the different-
0: I've got four screens open right now. One, two, three, four, five. Yeah, Yeah, I've got five screens, yeah. It's
1: the influx of information that just happens nonstop. So if you were to say, all right, these are the things that make a VC really good, right? You talked about- EQ and and listening and being able to learn, would would those be the top three? And if there's one or two others, what would you say makes a really good VC?
0: Those three are definitely, I mean, those are table stakes. I think everyone has the ability to learn, the ability to network. I think EQ is just something, you know, some people either have it or they don't. I mean, there's certainly different personalities and I wouldn't want anyone to think that they could force themselves into having EQ, but maybe just try actively listening, you know, is a, is a good next step. I think one thing that's lost on a lot of people, at least those who are not investors, of is how much of being a venture investor involves being a salesperson. You have to sell your firm, you have to sell your value proposition, you have to sell yourself as or sort of a contributor to an entrepreneur's story. It's lost on some people. They they assume that since we're sitting in the position of writing checks, that things just naturally fall in our laps where you actually have to go out and hustle and show resilience and and sell. And so having an ability to connect with people and, you know, that's a key component to it. The other thing is that I love to say all the time is that no is always the easiest answer. And, you know, it takes a ton of conviction to say yes. And sometimes you just have to take a risk. It's a comfortable thing to say no. Right. Because nobody ever you don't lose money by saying no, you don't never gets fired by saying no in in our business. But, you know, you have to at some point, you know, have some conviction and take a leap of faith.
1: And I think that's the hardest thing for anybody in your position to do, because what you're managing and what you're trying to create is dependent upon that yes and that no. Two more questions. Your, Your Twitter bio. Look, Twitter's coming back, everybody. People don't realize that. But if you're into NFTs and metaverse, like everybody is doing everything on Twitter. Yeah, at some point, nobody's even going to have any phone numbers because you're not going to be able to verify it's your phone number. You want to call somebody, you better socially engage with them first. So your Twitter bio reads relentlessly pursuing the Godshot." for those that
0: don't know you. What does that mean? OK, well, so first of all, it took you 12 years to follow me back on Twitter. OK, <laughs> let's just get that out of the way. Right where we had like an exchange on DMS about like the New York Rangers fight song. And then, you know, I had to text you like two weeks ago and say, Hey man, you don't follow me on Twitter. Right. So let's just like, let's like put that aside for a second. So the God shot, and you know this because you've seen it personally, I'm a amateur photographer. And so it's sort of a play on words on a couple of things. I'm an amateur photographer and I'm also a, in your words, a coffee nerd slash snob and so the God shot talks about the perfect shot of espresso. However, I have now parlayed that into also including really crappy photography that I shoot on the side. So it's a sort of word play on both of my hobbies.
1: I do appreciate the coffees that we do have with each other. I'm pretty sure you've never taken a picture Of any of the coffee that we've consumed so
0: actually i have a picture of you (laughs) taking a picture of the coffee that we consume so like very very inception style like taking a picture of you taking a picture of the coffee so
1: well we we all know that the the world runs on coffee and it's necessary and so i hope everybody checks out your twitter handle in order to be able to see the pursuit of the god shot so we always like to end the Pathfinders, presented by Encerrada, by Meals and Deals. So I want to know, tell us a story of your favorite deal and your celebratory meal. Like you know, when you closed, it could be when you were younger or, or now, where you went to go eat, where you really enjoyed celebrating that deal.
0: Okay, so you know, this wasn't necessarily a deal outcome, but it was a board meeting of a company that I would. Just so happened to find myself being on the board of when I was a younger investor in my career, and it was captains of industry. So, you know, my fellow board members included the former vice chairman of Credit Suisse and very large managing directors. And you know, I was I think at the time I was a I was a newly minted associate. And you know, the, the banter around the table once we decided that we would go ahead with the you know new round of investment funding, and this company ended up being very successful and sold to. a a large market data provider. The banter around the table was, you know, who was getting on the Midtown heliport to fly back to their next destination. And you know, while I was eating my chocolate chip cookie, which was the only thing that I was able to get out of the lunchbox that day, I stood up without, you know, any sort of like broad emotion and said, "Well, can I get on the subway and take the cab back downtown to the office?" So, you know, that was my one sort of favorite memory of being an early you know, investor surrounded by captains of industry.
1: So it doesn't matter who or where or, or when you can always share a chocolate chip cookie with those that you are working with. So, Bert, I just want to say thank you so much for joining us today. Um, your Insights, intelligence, your advice and counsel to so many people. I think that, you know, for, for those that are listening, remember about having that EQ. Remember about listening. Remember but you don't always have to say something in a meeting. Sometimes it's better just to sit there and to process because there's a lot of people that are shouting, a lot of people that are talking, but there's not enough people like Bert that are listening. And that's why he's doing big things at ZX Ventures. So thank you, Bert. I wanna say a very special thanks again to Bert Everett for being with us today. It's great to be able to learn a bit about his career and how ZX Ventures is empowering entrepreneurs to unlock exponential growth and build ventures that allow us to meet the needs of tomorrow. If you're enjoying The Pathfinders, please make sure to leave us a review so more people can find the show. Until next time, I'm Donnie Jones, and this has been The Pathfinders, presented by Ansarada.